Hello, folks. Welcome to First Thursday, the monthly podcast from the Labor Relations Information System. My name is Will Aitchison. I'll be with you for the next 45 minutes or so as we go over recent developments in the world of public safety labor relations. And boy, do I have a lot of things to talk about, a lot of cases, some crazy cases. Uh, I want to talk to you about a disciplinary case comes out of Oklahoma City where the employer managed to do pretty much everything wrong. And it's a really good illustration of why an employer should always have some just cause checklist on hand before it imposes discipline, particularly in this case, termination. I've got a case out of New York where a federal court, believe it or not, allows the employer without a warrant, without probable cause, to seize a corrections officer's private weapons. Uh, I have an anti-fraternization case where a, uh, a court is considering whether or not the constitutional right to marriage uh, somehow impairs a fraternization rule. I've got a case involving a disciplinary decision maker who, uh, apparently on the fence about things, decided to consult with his wife before he made a decision to terminate an employee. Uh, And on the basis of his wife's advice, he relied on it, made the decision to terminate. And we'll talk about whether or not there's any due process implications to all of that. Hint. Uh, Yeah, there are. Uh, Also, I have a Garrity case, and I've got an ADA case, reasonable accommodation, light duty, and corrections, uh, particularly for a corrections lieutenant. So let's get right to it and start talking about these cases. Let's start with that Oklahoma City disciplinary case. It involves uh, a relatively new officer by the name of Devin Frazier, And he responds to a call for service about a domestic disturbance uh, late one night in 2020, September 15, 2020, if you're counting. Uh, He encounters a woman who's later identified as Kimberly Sanabria, and I'll just refer to her as KS because it's going to be a lot easier. Uh, He encounters her sitting outside the residence. She's talking on the phone. She has blood on her face, on her shoulder, on her shirt. Uh, So Frazier engages her. He tries to talk with her about what had happened, but she wasn't forthcoming. Uh, And to build rapport and get information from her, Frazier started behaving in a flirtatious manner. Uh, And all I am doing here is reporting what the arbitrator eventually wrote. So, And and apparently uh, Frazier admitted to what he had done. K.S. eventually tells Frazier that the father of her children, Jeremy Goudeau, had recently been released from prison and he'd stopped by to see the kids. K.S. invites Goudeau into her apartment, but after a couple of hours, she tires of him and asks him to leave. When he refuses, she picks up the phone to call 9-11, and Goudeau grabs the phone and the fight is on. Uh, He begins to wrestle with her, eventually throwing the phone uh, against the wall. After a couple of bouts of wrestling, K.S. bites off a large part of Goudeau's ear and runs out of the apartment, or he runs out of the apartment. 
Uh, Frazier had not previously handled a call like this. Again, he's a relatively new employee. A call that seemed to involve mutual comment, combat, as well as the severing of a significant body part. So he asked KS to wait, and he gets in touch with his supervisor, Lieutenant Isaac Goodman, and he wants input as to how to handle the call. And Goodman gives some advice, and while Goodman is on the phone with Frazier, KS comes up to Frazier to let him know that Godot was also on the phone. And at that point, Frazier ends the call with Goodman to talk to Godot. Godot tells Frazier, uh, here's what happened. Uh, and he tells, uh, I know this is going to surprise our listeners, he tells a different story than K.S. tells. Uh, uh, Godot tells Frazier that he'd been asleep in the master bedroom when K.S. jumped on him and without provocation bit off his ear. Godot said uh, he didn't want to file charges and he didn't need medical assistance, uh, but uh, he did want some sort of intervention. He wasn't clear with the police. So after talking with Godot, uh, Frazier asked KS if he could look around the inside of this apartment so he could try to figure out which of these two competing stories was true. Frazier, he gets consent. Frazier sees blood and a piece of the ear on the living room floor, but no evidence of a disturbance in the bedroom. Um, K.S., while they're walking through, says she doesn't want to press charges against Goudeau. So now we have both of them not wanting uh, to press charges against the other. Uh, Frazier leaves the apartment to call Goodman back. Goodman says, well, you know, what K.S. did might support maiming charges, but uh, Frazier expressed his belief that K.S. may have acted in self-defense. So Goodman tells Frazier, take photographs, write a good report, and if you need me, you know how to get in touch with me and just give me a call. So uh, Frazier uh, starts the process of taking photographs, only his city-issued cell phone uh, had a bit dead battery and would not charge. So Frazier decides to use his personal cell phone to take photos of KS and the apartment. Frazier learns that K, uh, KS has taken the piece of the ear, I'm sure you were wondering what happened to that piece of the ear, and put it into a cooler. Frazier instructs KS not to touch anything else at the scene and asked her if by any chance she had taken a picture of the ear before moving it. And she had. She's a pretty good uh, crime scene person here. She had taken a picture, uh, and uh, Frazier asked her to email it to him. Well, KS isn't able to email from her phone, so uh, Frazier gives KS his personal cell phone number so she could text him in the, fo text him the photo. Uh, and uh, Later on, KS confirms that she, in fact, did initiate the texting with Frazier. And as uh, Frazier is leaving KS's apartment, the work is all done there. Nobody wants to press charges. No one's getting arrested. And it's really unclear where the piece of the ear is, but uh, that's a fault of the arbitrator, not Officer Frazier. Uh, so as Frazier is leaving, uh, KS approaches him as if to hug him. 
And he turns to the side, extended his arm around her shoulder, patted her on the back and said, uh, words to the effect of, don't worry, we'll get this taken care of. Uh, Frazier returns to the station to write the report. Uh, he gets the uh, text message from KS with the photo of the year, uploads the photo, attaches it to the report, and then Frazier eventually goes home and begins drinking a lot. He drinks a pint of tequila. Uh, KS, uh, uh, in the middle of the night, texts Frazier, asks him some questions about himself. He replies. Uh, The conversation by text initially focused on questions about where Frazier was from, whether he had kids and things like that. KS sends Frazier some pictures of herself, saying, uh, I'd like you to see what I look like without blood all over me. The photos weren't sexual. Uh, Frazier replies, tells KS she looks attractive. KS asks Frazier what he looked like out of uniform, and he sent her a photo uh, that he had on his phone in which he was shirtless. Later in the texting exchange, which goes on for some time, and when Frazier is getting more and more inebriated, he asks KS something to the effect of, hey, you should send me something sexy. And when Frazier awoke midday on the next day, he kind of thinks, maybe I shouldn't have done all that stuff. And he deleted the text message thread between himself and KS and reported to work as scheduled. So uh, the city takes a look at this, does an investigation, and pretty much says something like, and I'm borrowing here from Elizabeth Barrett Browning, Uh, How can I fire thee? Let me count the ways. And totes up a whole bunch of charges, Uh, everything from the way Frazier acted at the crime scene to the texting to the failure to preserve evidence to the failure to take somebody to jail. I mean, you you can imagine what the charges are. Uh, And the city fires uh, Frazier. His union, the FOP, appeals and goes to an arbitrator And an arbitrator looks at Frazier's conduct, and she kind of cocks one eye at the conduct, and it's pretty clear she's not thrilled with Frazier, but she's really not thrilled with the city. Uh, And she kind of says something like, borrowing from Elizabeth Barrett Browning, uh, how can you mess up the principles of just cause? Let me count the ways. Well, here are the ways that the city did so. Uh, First of all, it didn't comply with its written directives. Uh, It has directives on how internal affairs investigations are to be conducted. And those directives, among other uh, things, give the employee the right to know what the alleged misconduct is. And the city didn't do that with Frazier. Also, uh, I've neglected to mention something. Uh, There actually is a formal complainant here. The formal complainant is uh, uh, KS's, I believe, sister-in-law, either sister or sister-in-law, sorry about that. Uh, And the department's rules require the employer to give notice of who the complainant is. And the employer didn't do that. 
Uh, and the arbitrator says, well, that's very fundamental to just cause. You have to comply with your own rules. Some of them, by the way, which are actually incorporated into the underlying collective bargaining agreement. Uh, and uh, the, uh, the arbitrator goes on. And the arbitrator says, look, you had another problem with the charges here. You didn't provide notice to the extent you provided any notice at all. And what she really faults the city for is not providing notice of the facts that give rise to the laundry list of uh, policy violations. Uh, but this, on the second issue, the arbitrator says, look, you didn't even provide notice of all of the charges. Um, and uh, what does she have to say here? She says that, uh, look, the chief and a captain both testified that Frazier was untruthful in his in initial internal affairs interview. Uh, and at the pre-termination hearing, that factored heavily into their assessment of his dishonesty. There were independent untruthfulness charges as well. Uh, and the city at the hearing actually uh, makes the same argument, that the untruthfulness in the initial IA interview and the pre-disciplinary hearing factored into their assessment of whether Frazier was dishonest throughout. However, they did not provide Frazier with notice that what he said in the IA interview and the pre-termination hearing uh, were an element of the dishonesty charge. And the arbitrator says, fundamental problem with due process there. Now, you may be thinking, uh, there was a due process hearing. I've referred to a pre-termination hearing. What do you do when an employee lies at a pre-termination hearing, as the chief and the captain thought that Frazier did here. Uh, well, what this arbitrator is saying, and courts would say precisely the same thing, by the way, is what you have to do is you have to crank up a new investigation, provide a new notice of charges, uh, do the investigation, and then have a new pre-disciplinary hearing giving the employee notice of the additional charges. You just can't tack one on at the end without letting the employee know that you are going to raise those charges. Now, uh, the arbitrator uh, says, eh, I'm not quite through yet uh, without, with all of this stuff. Uh, second, uh, or third, uh, I've got some really serious uh, comparative discipline problems here. Um, and you appear, City, to have treated other employees much more leniently than you treated Frazier. Other employees who had elements of dishonesty in what they did uh, or uh, engaged in similar behavior to Frazier with the text messages and all of that sort of stuff. Uh, and the city said, wait a minute, time out, Madam Arbitrator. Uh, we believe that comparative discipline should be analyzed only by comparing discipline administered by this police chief. As each chief has the latitude to impose discipline, according to his or her own priorities. And this chief, Chief Corley, has prioritized honesty, integrity, and truthfulness, uh, not just in internal affairs, but he goes out and he preaches this to the community. 
uh, and the arbitrator says, not buying it. Now, uh, the arbitrator doesn't articulate this as well as I would like, but this is this is an argument you kind of frequently see in public safety disciplinary cases. I think of it as the new sheriff argument. The new sheriff rides into town, gets elected, and he or she can change all the disciplinary rules. That's the notice. And it applies to, uh, or notion, excuse me, and it applies to not just uh, law enforcement, it also applies to fire chiefs. Well, how, do, how does that really play out? Well, Remember, we're in a collective bargaining environment here. And in collective bargaining states, the standards for discipline are almost uniformly thought to be mandatory subjects of bargaining. This is why, for example, the adoption of a disciplinary matrix or the modification of a matrix or abandoning a matrix, that's why all those things are negotiable. And the reason that... Uh, arbitrators and labor boards uh, don't look kindly on the new sheriff argument is the union's collective bargaining relationship is with the employer, not individual chiefs. And it is the employer that has the obligation to maintain the status quo with respect to discipline. And here's how this uh, arbitrator actually ends up phrasing this. She says, quote, I do not concur that the discipline must be imposed by the same decision maker, i.e. the same chief of police, in order for it to be comparative. Clearly, the closer in time two comparative discipline incidents are, the more probative the evidence. But the collective bargaining relationship and the past practices of the parties survive changes in leadership. The histories of how the parties implement policies and discipline in the workplace is not erased by the appointment of a new police chief. So what's a new police chief, fire chief, sheriff to do if they think the prior chief, sheriff, has been too lenient? You give notice to the union of your intent to make a change in disciplinary standards. You wait for the inevitable demand a bargain that will come from the union, and then you negotiate whatever the negotiations process is in your state. You're able to do it. You just can't do it unilaterally. So the arbitrator rejects uh, the, uh, the city's argument that uh, look, prior discipline isn't relevant unless Chief Gorley issued it. So that means the arbitrator can look at prior cases. And she had a lot of them to look at. So one of them involved, uh, I'm, I'm just simply going to use initials here, a Sergeant G uh, and Sergeant G uh, damaged property and sub subsequently was failure to be truthful about the property damage. Uh, he ended up with what's called a class three reprimand. Then there's Officer B who failed to report a collision and then was less than truthful about it after the fact. Class three reprimand. Officer H who was involved in a single vehicle collision and then later provided inaccurate details as to how the collision occurred in his disciplinary investigation. 
He later admitted the truth after being told of the department's evidence. A class two reprimand. Officer S. Officer S. Uh, ended up in a kind of sort of relationship with a victim on a domestic violence call. After being removed from her criminal case, he continued to communicate with the victim in person and online. He communicated with her after she was interviewed as a witness, uh, and he discussed his interview testimony with her, uh, and he was found in bed with her. Uh, Officer S. received a Class three reprimand and a two-day suspension. So the arbitrator looks all at all of this and says, uh, yeah, you got a real inconsistent discipline problem here, and you can't move right to discharge with Officer Frazier. And then the last one that I want to talk about, and there's actually more fault that the arbitrator finds with this decision, uh, is the reasonableness of the penalty and consideration of mitigating circumstances. And the arbitrator says, you know, the penalty of discharge, even given this pretty serious conduct by Frazier, is just simply too harsh given the circumstances and the mitigating circumstances. Uh, so what are those? First, uh, she says the city didn't follow its own uh, policies and violated Frazier's procedural due process rights. Second, this one's really important, the city didn't prove all of its allegations against Frazier. Remember a, when I was saying, how can I terminate thee? Let me count the ways. Arbitrators don't like overcharging where an employer basically opens up its rule book and lists in the disciplinary penalty or disciplinary decision all rules that could conceivably apply to a given factual situation. Uh, arbitrators just don't like that sort of overcharging. And here, the city only proved seven out of the 10 allegations against them. And uh, most importantly, Two of the allegations that weren't proven, the dishonesty charge and publishing mobile computer data, uh, were among the most serious allegations. So uh, the arbitrator says, you overcharged here. And third mitigating circumstance, uh, the penalty just simply isn't consistent with other cases that you have presented to me. Uh, but maybe most importantly, and I say this as a lawyer who's represented public safety unions his whole career, maybe most importantly, Frazier came into the arbitration hearing and fell on his sword. Uh, he may have done that before. He may have done it with the chief. It's just not clear from the arbitrator's opinion. Uh, but the arbitrator ends up saying that, quote, uh, Frazier has demonstrated his understanding of the impropriety of his conduct. Uh, and I can't tell you how important that is to decision makers, to chiefs, to sheriffs, to arbitrators, to civil service boards, uh, where an employee comes into whatever the hearing may be and looks at the decision maker and says, I'm sorry, I screwed up. I made a mistake, and I've learned. There may be no more powerful thing that an employee can say. So what does this arbitrator end up doing with this case? Uh, 
the arbitrator ends up reducing the termination to a class two reprimand and a two-day suspension. While we're in that part of the country, let's go over to Dice Air Force Base in Texas and a firefighter by the name of Jacob Johnson, who works as a uh, work works as a firefighter for the Air Force. Uh, he worked there only for two years, from 2017 to 2019. In the middle of that, in 2018, uh, Johnson's mother came to live with Johnson and his family. Uh, she was then taking eight or 13 pills a day uh, to treat various health issues. Johnson, who had his own health issues, was taking seven or eight pills a day. Johnson was subject to random drug testing, uh, and he tested positive for oxycodone and oxymorphone. Uh, he informed his supervisor, uh, uh, the chief, uh, Chief Renard is his name, of the positive drug test, and uh, told the chief that he believed he had accidentally taken one of his mother's pills instead of his own prescribed medication. Uh, the chief makes a proposal that Johnson be fired, and the proposal to terminate Johnson is then referred to the deciding officer uh, at the base, Lieutenant Colonel Charles R. Fletcher. And Fletcher ends up firing Johnson, explaining that he could not, and I'm quoting, risk the possibility of Johnson coming to work again under the influence of illicit drugs. Uh, Johnson files a challenge to his termination uh, under, there's a uh, collective bargaining agreement under the grievance procedure. Uh, and during the arbitration hearing, Fletcher, the decision maker, says something pretty unusual. I've read a lot of arbitrators' opinions. I've never seen a decision maker say something like this. Quote, you know, I consult advisors and I make decisions. When I heard Johnson's explanation, I wanted to make sure I consulted probably my number one advisor, my wife, which is, she's a registered nurse, and I just wanted to make sure I wasn't off. And I spoke to my brother-in-law, who's a nurse practitioner, and they confirmed that the likelihood of that happening, of Johnson accidentally taking one of his mother's pills, the likelihood of that happening is slim to none. The arbitrator uh, denies Johnson's grievance, and Johnson challenges, uh, challenges the decision through the federal court system. And it goes to a federal court we don't talk about very much. It is the Federal Circuit Court of Appeals. It's kind of like uh, other circuit courts of appeals, you know, the First Circuit or the Ninth Circuit only. Instead of being geographic, uh, the cases that get to the uh, Federal Circuit Court of Appeals are basically those involving uh, the federal government, a subset of cases involving the federal government. And the Court of Appeals uh, reverses the arbitrator's decision. Uh, why? Why does it do so? Uh, it, it says, look, uh, uh, Fletcher engaged in an ex parte communication Ex parte, meaning outside of the presence of all of the parties of the case. Uh, the court says not every ex parte communication by a decision maker is impermissible, but 
if the ex-party communication introduces new or material information to whoever it is who's the deciding official, that will violate the due process guarantees of notice. Uh, remember due process at its heart. You've got to give notice of the intent to deprive somebody of a property right, and then you have to give them a hearing. So this is the notice prong of that. And uh, the court goes on to say, uh, here's why we think that what Fletcher did violated Johnson's due process rights. Uh, and I'm going to quote, it is apparent that Fletcher received new not cumulative information from his sister and brother-in-law. Namely, he received the opinion of two medical professionals that the possibility that Johnson accidentally took his mother's pill was slim to none. We reject the Air Force's argument that the ex-party communications were permissible because they didn't change Fletcher's existing understanding of Johnson's explanation as being non-credible. Court goes on to say, quote, a deciding officer may violate an employee's due process rights even if the deciding officer states he would have concluded that the employee should have been fired whether or not he received the ex parte communications. Uh, and the court ends up saying, uh, look, uh, uh, this is pretty important. This evidence that Fletcher got, uh, this is very material. Uh, and in particular, the people he got it from is very important. Uh, the court says, quote, we need not decide whether uh, the facts of the dishonesty themselves, suffice, dishonesty in the way Fletcher handled it, suffice to find a due process violation, or to find that the ex-party communications were the type likely to result in undue pressure upon Fletcher, in this case, there's very good reason to so find. Familiar bonds are often strong and intimate, making family members arguably the most influential people in anyone's life. So the court says got a due process violation. Now what do we do with it? What's the remedy? Well, the remedy in these due process cases is basically the employer uh, has to do a do-over. Uh, you reinstate the employee, reinstate the employee with full back pay and benefits, and then the employer can, if it wants, uh, tee up the whole system again. Uh, give proper notice of charges, give a proper hearing, uh, and then the employer can take whatever disciplinary action that it wants. Um, in the words of the court, uh, quote, if the Air Force continues to believe that Johnson should be fired, it can institute an entirely new and constitutionally correct procedure to remove him. Uh, and uh, it's unclear from the court's opinion, of course, whether, what it is the Air Force is going to do. Uh, but I'll give some unsolicited advice to the Air Force on this. Don't use Fletcher as the decision maker next time around. Next up, I want to talk about a very unusual case involving a New York City corrections officer and his guns. And I've got to say, the first time I read this uh, case, I just almost kind of couldn't believe what I was reading um, and went back and read it and then went back and read it again. And uh, boy, it 
says what it says. Uh, so here's what's going on. This involves Andre Anderson, uh, who works for the city's Department of Correction. He's driving home one night, and he gets rear-ended by another motorist. And the motorist flees the accident scene after Anderson asks for an exchange of insurance information. Anderson then pursues the occupants of the departing vehicle, uh, first by car, then on foot. Uh, he draws his personal firearm. He misidentifies himself as a police officer, and he orders a passenger to get to the floor of wherever he tracks these people down. Uh, the Department of Corrections learns of this, suspends uh, Anderson uh, from duty that day, and that triggers a rule uh, that uh, that is called the Required Surrender Rule for the DOC. And under this, uh, and a corrections officer under some circumstances is required to surrender certain personal firearms uh, if they are facing particular types of disciplinary charges. Uh, Anderson doesn't object to the initial seizure of his registered on-duty firearm, which was a personally owned Glock 19, uh, at his restaurant. But he sues the DOC, and he alleges that the DOC exceeded the scope of his consent when also at its resident, it, he, it seized two of his other weapons, a Sig Sauer P365 and a Smith & Wesson M&P 15. And Anderson's primary argument in the lawsuit was that the seizure of the additional weapons that he did not consent to violated his Fourth Amendment rights. A federal court throws the claims out. And uh, this is the briefest of opinions. The entire analysis of what seems to me to be a pretty serious Fourth Amendment constitutional issue, the entire analysis of that can be counted on, in terms of the number of sentences, on the fingers of one hand. This is not a good opinion or well-explained uh, well opinion. Uh, but here's what the court says, and I'm going to be quoting from uh, a pretty much the entirety of the court's opinion, because it is so short. The court says here, it is undisputed that defendants, the DOC and some supervisors, seized Anderson's firearms after he admittedly chased down and detained a civilian at gunpoint after an off-duty car accident. In light of Anderson's job-related responsibilities and the nature of the misconduct, the alleged seizures patently were reasonable at their inception. Whoa, continuing on. Anderson's Fourth Amendment claims must be dismissed because Anderson has conceded that the DOC was entitled to seize at least some job-related personal property pursuant to valid DOC regulations while they were lawfully present at his homes. Viewing the evidence in the light most favorable to him, it is objectively reasonable for defendants to believe their actions were lawful, if not required, once Anderson surrendered the first handgun without objection. Whoa, think about that. 
in traditional Fourth Amendment analysis. This is the seizure of property. And uh, the Fourth Amendment, of course, applies to uh, searches and seizures. What does the Fourth Amendment say about that? You've got to have a warrant and probable cause unless there is an exception that somehow applies. The court doesn't get into, doesn't use the words warrant or probable cause. It simply assumes that uh, the employer has the ability to go into someone's house with the employee's consent and demand that uh, the employee produce personally owned property, in this case weapons, so there's maybe even some Second Amendment implications of this, I doubt it, but maybe, uh, personally owned property, and walk off with that property without a warrant and probable cause. Uh, I think the only saving grace to this opinion uh, is that it is so short and so parsely, uh, sparsely reasoned that it's not going to have much in the way of precedental impact. Now, I don't know if when the court, if the court had done its job here, if it had looked at all of the facts, analyzed those facts in light of Fourth Amendment jurisprudence, doesn't even cite any cases uh, for its ultimate conclusion. Uh, I, I don't know whether or not the case would have come out the same way because we just simply don't know reading the opinion. But it is a very, very striking opinion. While I'm talking about corrections, let's go up to Cook County in Illinois, Chicago's county. Uh, and this is a classic Americans with Disabilities Act reasonable accommodation case. Uh, and it comes out the way so, so many of these reasonable accommodation cases come out in public safety. And that is with the conclusion uh, that there's no obligation on the part of the employer to basically create or even assign an employee to a light-duty job if they can't perform all 100% of the essential functions of the job. So let's, uh, uh, let's talk about the facts in this case. This involves a, uh, a, a captain. Excuse me. Uh, this involves a lieutenant. Sorry about that. A uh, lieutenant by the name of Larry Tate. And he's a longtime employee of the Department of Corrections, been there 15 years. Uh, in his third year on the job, he suffers a back injury. Uh, and he returned to work under medical restrictions that required him to avoid situations in which there was a significant chance of violence or conflict. Somehow, uh, he performs his duties as a corrections officer. He gets promoted to sergeant, and the sar uh, sheriff's office agrees to accommodate his medical restriction by allowing him to work in the classification unit, where the possibility of violence or physical conflict was relatively remote. Uh, but when Tate uh, promotes to lieutenant, he's told by the sheriff that, uh, or when he wants to promote to lieutenant, uh, he's told by the sheriff, uh, I can't accommodate you as a lieutenant because corrections lieutenants 
have to be able to manage and diffuse regular violent situations involving inmates. And since Tate's medical condition won't allow him to do that, the sheriff's department said, you're going to stay a sergeant. Tate sues for violations of the Americans with Disabilities Act and the Illinois Human Rights Act. And his essential argument here is, uh, look, uh, the possibility that a lieutenant is going to get involved in a situation where you have a violent inmate, that is really, really remote. In fact, it's more remote then the possibility that a sergeant would have to get involved in uh, such an incident. And the court ends up rejecting his arguments. Uh, the court says the employer's job description, which is really important in ADA cases, not dispositive, but really important, the employer's job description explicitly says that responding physically to violent emergencies is an essential function of the lieutenant's job. Uh, it's listed in several places on the job description, including under the heading of key responsibilities and duties. Um, and the court says this, and I'm quoting, the special feature of this case is the role of correctional lieutenants in responding to emergencies, including those involving inmate violence. The crux of Tate's argument is that responding to violent emergencies is not an essential function for all correctional lieutenants because some assignments only rarely require the use of physical force. Tate argues that, as he sees it, the higher up in rank you go, the less inmate contact that you have. Retired lieutenants corroborated this view. But the court says, doesn't really matter. Why? Quote, the relative frequency with which a lieutenant is required to use physical force depends in part on the lieutenant's particular assignment. If the essential functions of the job inquiry were about probabilities, Tate would have a stronger argument. Yet we cannot lose sight of the need for emergency responses in law enforcement and public safety agencies like the Department of Corrections. Many police officers never discharge their service weapons in the line of duty, but that does not mean that weapons proficiency for all is optional. Uh, while a firefighter may not have to carry an unconscious adult from a burning building, failing to require that he ably perform this function when called upon would run counter to his duty to public safety. And so, bottom line, uh, the court says, even though responding to emergencies may be infrequent, it is an essential function of the job of a corrections lieutenant and under the ADA, the employer does not have to accommodate somebody's disability by carving out of their duties and not requiring them to perform an essential function of the job. And as I, I said at the start, this is actually very standard ADA analysis. I can remember when the ADA came, came into effect um, a few decades ago, uh, there was a lot of thought in public safety uh, that we would have permanent light duty assignments, that the ADA required them. 
that because you know part of the ADA's text that talks about reasonable accommodation requires job restructuring and assignment to vacant positions. All I can say is, after decades since the ADA was written, uh, that possibility that we would have a lot of people on light duty just simply has not played out in the courts. And then finally, I want to get to the uh, fraternization case that I mentioned to you. Uh, This is a case that comes out of Louisiana. A captain by the name of Calvin Lewis with the St. Tammany uh, Parish Sheriff's Office in Louisiana. Uh, Lewis met a woman, uh, court only refers to her as Jane Doe, while he was assigned to a work detail in 2007 uh, that began dating. Um, and uh, a while afterwards, Lewis Doe and Doe's two children from a previous relationship begin living together. That happens in 2010. Uh, Lewis, uh, Lewis's relationship with Doe, who had a past felony conviction at the time the two of them began dating, was open and well-known among his colleagues. In uh, January of 2017, after Lewis is promoted to captain, he learns of a Facebook post in which someone commented that a newly promoted captain was living with a convicted felon uh, in violation of the department's policies. And the department's policies have a somewhat fairly standard anti-fraternization rule uh, that prohibits uh, employees from uh, maintaining intimate relationships, maintaining uh, even uh, friend relationships with people who have been convicted of felonies. Now, there's been a fair amount of litigation over these in the past. By and large, they have been upheld. Um, although there have been some courts that say uh, that uh, you can't have a blanket rule with respect to these policies because it's going to depend upon the nature of the relationship. Uh, There are some courts that will say uh, that uh, if the relationship is close to a or is a marriage relationship, uh, it's going to be more difficult to apply the anti-fraternization rule to employees like that. But if it's just somebody who has two people who have met uh, and they're going out on dates, uh, that's going to be easier to apply the anti-fraternization rule. Um, but uh, the Fifth Circuit uh, Federal Court of Appeals, uh, which is a place where employee rights lawsuits uh, go to die and has been for years and years. Uh, The Fifth Circuit uh, is not a a court that will say there should be any stratification in terms of the nature of relationships. Um, So how does the Fifth Circuit get the case? Uh, The sheriff's office fires Lewis for the relationship. They basically say, um, you're going to have to choose. Uh, between Doe uh, and her children, and they and Do, Lewis and Doe have now been together for 10 years. They've been living together as a family uh, with her children for seven years. Uh, the sheriff's office says, uh, you got a choice here, your job or Doe. Uh, Lewis refuses to break up with Doe, 
and he's terminated, and he sues, saying, this violates my First Amendment right to personal association, and it also violates my privacy right in intimate relationships. Um, think, uh, you know, the Supreme Court's line of cases that uh, for uh, many years culminated with Roe versus Wade uh, when you're thinking about privacy of intimate relationships, although Roe versus Wade has now been reversed. There are other decisions, most notably a case involving birth control uh, called Griswold versus Connecticut, uh, that are still good law uh, and that establish that there is a privacy right in our personal relationships. So uh, what does the court say when it rules against uh, uh, Lewis in this case and upholds its termination? Uh, the court says it really comes down to the burden of proof in this case. Uh, the court says Lewis argues that strict scrutiny, strict scrutiny is the highest standard of review. Uh, it's the toughest one for an employer to meet. It has to show a compelling reason uh, is the phrase that is used for its decision. Uh, so Lewis argues that sticks, strict scrutiny uh, is the standard of review in the case. The sheriff, on the other hand, and the trial court, and the court of appeals in this case, rejects that argument uh, and says simply because this is a marriage-like status and Lewis's constitutional right of intimate association is implicated here doesn't mean that we should apply strict scrutiny. Instead, we are going to apply the rational basis test. What's the rational basis test? Rational basis test is if there is any rational basis for the employer's decision, then the employer's decision will be upheld. Doesn't have to be a good reason, doesn't have to be the right reason, any reason will do, so long as that reason is rational. And in these constitutional litigation cases, it's very, very common to see that the choice of the standard of review dictates the result. If you have strict scrutiny, the employee's pretty much going to win. If you have rational basis, the employer is going to win. And that's what happens here. Uh, and why is the court applying the rational basis test? The court says this policy, the fraternization policy, doesn't place a direct and substantial burden on the right to intimate relationships because it doesn't completely prohibit one class of people from being with each other. Quote, in other words... The policy only incidentally affects the right to intimate association because it requires employees who violate the policy to relinquish their jobs, but doesn't prohibit the relationship itself. Did I really just say that? You probably are wondering. That requiring an employee to choose between their job and their marriage or their marriage-like relationship doesn't significantly interfere with the relationship? 
Uh, it's only, in the words of the court, incidental. That's exactly what I just said. And what's the rational basis the court finds? Well, I'm sure we can all come up with this one. Um, the, and I'm quoting from the court, the department's legitimate interest in preventing its officers from placing themselves in compromising positions and in preserving the department's reputation in the public and the law enforcement community are reasonably advanced by the anti-fraternization policy. And that's especially true, says the court, of supervisors like Lewis. So uh, the court ends up dismissing Lewis's lawsuit. He stays fired and he stays with uh, Doe. Now this is a two to one decision. There's a dissenting judge and boy, does the dissenting judge lower both barrels of the shotgun. Uh, here's what the dissenting judge says. And I, I, I'm only going to read you two or three sentences here to give you a flavor for it. The majority's approach would create an anomaly in the law whereby the right to marry is afforded less constitutional protection than other fundamental liberties. Courts apply heightened scrutiny, scrutiny, or at least some form of interest balancing test, when a government employer burdens or retaliates against an employee because of his or her religious exercise, speech, or testimony of matters of public concern, political activities, educational decisions for their children, or the decision to breastfeed. All of those in, uh, involve cases. But when it comes to marriage, one of the most fundamental rights of all, the majority of the court will do no more than ask whether the employment policy is rationally related to a conceivable legitimate objective without balancing those objectives against the employee's profound liberty interests. This double standard relegates marriage to the status of a second-class right that cannot be. Now, while I agree with the dissenting judge's take on the law here, I don't agree with those last three words. That cannot be. He was the dissenting judge. It's a three-judge court. It, in fact, can be and is that Lewis lost his job. Okay, and uh, one concluding note on these fraternization policies uh, Louisiana, uh, you probably know, there's no collective uh, bargaining in Louisiana or to the extent there is, it's a very, very truncated form of collective bargaining. If you're in a collective bargaining state, would an anti-fraternization policy be a mandatory subject to bargaining? Sure, right? It concerns uh, the most important of working conditions, job security, and the standards for discipline. So if an employer adopts or substantially amends a uh, fraternization policy, uh, that would be a moment in which there would be an obligation to bargain if the union asserted uh, the right to bargain. Okay, with that, that's the November uh, 2022 edition of First Thursday. Thanks for joining me. 
Uh, hope to see you at our upcoming conference in January in Las Vegas on public safety union leadership. It's always a great conference. We bring a whole bunch of speakers who are not lawyers, uh, union presidents from around the country, uh, to share their experiences with us and to tell you what's successful and what's not successful in areas like treatment of union finances, involvement in politics, communication, uh, disciplinary investigations, and the like. So with that, uh, this is Will Aitchison signing off.